1: Hello and welcome to episode number 100 of the Ministry of Arts podcast. I hope you're all doing well out there. And thanks for joining me on this centenary edition. It took just over two and a half years to get to this point. The first episode, if you've heard it, was with Dougie Fields, which was recorded in a cemetery. Well, that was a damn fine one, the Brompton Cemetery. I was a bit eager to start. I recorded four that day. Along with Dougie, it was Patrick Hughes, Carrie Rykart and Bob Osborne. But unbeknownst to me, I had a faulty memory card which only recorded 5 minutes 51 seconds of each episode. But luckily I was advised to always make a backup recording, which I did. And anyone who's asked me about starting a podcast since, that's one of the key things that I tell them. Of the 100 episodes that have gone, there are a few that stand out. Having Mark Wallinger and Matt Collishaw back-to-back in Christmas 2018 was, well, that was quite a thing, really. They're both massive names and I was really lucky to get them. And, well, Mark being one of my art heroes made it quite intimidating, even though we know each other pretty well, you know. Episode 24 was Gina Soden. I always smile when I think of that episode because I didn't know Gina at all. We'd been speaking on email running up to the podcast and and having a bit of fun there, you know. But when we actually met, it was as if I'd always known her. Episode 27, Ray Richardson. That is very probably my favourite. With two voices like ours, there wasn't an H or a T in the house that day. And the podcast ends with both Ray and I collapsing in laughter over something quite silly as well. Episode 30 with tattooist Emily Malice. That was my most listened to episode, you know. Episode 31, Katie Piper. Now I had Katie Piper on because Lee Ainsworth and I were creating the face value exhibitions for her charity, the Katie Piper Foundation. And just to promote it, Kate agreed to do a little podcast with me. I've known Kate for a while and, and like most of us, we all know her story. Episode 38 was Martin Ware of Heaven 17 and the Human League. That was recorded in the Groucho Club. And again, I'd met Martin a few times before this episode, and damn interesting fella. The Maggie Hamblin episode, number 51. I thought it was such a coup when she agreed to do the podcast. And then the more people I spoke to who had met her, the scarier the stories got. But luckily, it turns out she loves a scallywag. And we got on just fine. Episode 57, the Christmas crossover last year. That was with myself... The Artproof Podcast, The Artfully Podcast and Delphian Podcast. We all met up round Rowan Newton's place, switched on the mics and started chatting. A really good episode. Episode 69, The Loveless Artist, Nick Hogburn. Nick runs a mental health podcast called The Mouth of Manliness. So we appeared on each other's podcast, that was pretty cool. Nick's work is sort of very dark and menacing. Sort of like a nightmare on paper, you know. Alison Lapper, number 75. I mean, Alison's a bit of a legend anyway, right? Sitting up there on the fourth plinth. But I went round to meet Alison at the start of lockdown, or at least a couple of weeks into it, at her home just outside of Brighton. And I've become pretty good mates with Ali, I've got to say. So much so, she's even invited me to a wedding next year. The episode with Matt Jukes, I really enjoyed, which was episode 81. I'd got to know Matt because he was uh, one of the founding members of The V Art Show which I was later invited to be a part of. And Sarah Maple, episode number 85, I'd been looking forward to recording an episode of Sarah since day one pretty much. She's one of my favourite artists and I was really looking forward to that. And that was followed by Background Bob. Background Bob is a teenage lad who was born with three severe disabilities. But that didn't stop him painting on over 250 a 4 size pieces of cardboard, which his dad, Nathan, then posted out to, to artists all over the world and then had an amazing exhibition at the First Sight Gallery in Colchester. The Richard Wilson episode. Man, that had so much good feedback. He's a proper legend, right? I was lucky enough to have worked with Richard in 2000, 2001, while I was at university. Ben Moore of Art Below. We recorded that in the Chelsea Arts Club one Sunday afternoon, out in the garden. There was only half a dozen people scattered about when we started the podcast. And fuck me, every man and his dog was there by the time we finished it. Dal Grimshaw. I'd not known Dal before. I'd seen his work everywhere and absolutely loved it. Got in touch, he agreed to do a podcast and I didn't know what to expect. Dal's was a good, fun story. Really good podcast. Which pretty much brings us up to date. And I've still got so many artists lined up for 2021. We've got comedians Rob Alton and Adam Buxton lined up. Um, Kellyanne Davitt, Kate Bryan, Gavin Turk has agreed, Bob and Roberta Smith, Tinsel Edwards and Twinkle and I want back to back. I can't even think who else has agreed. Um, Abigail Lane, Gary Hume, Pure Evil. There's loads. And well... Anyone who you'd like me to have on, just drop us a line and I'll see if I can get in touch with them. But anyway, back to this episode, after the longest introduction I've ever done. Although, with it being episode 100, I'm allowed, right? Well, I wanted to mark the 100th episode with someone special. I mean, not that anyone we've had on isn't special, but you know what I mean. I wanted it to be one to remember. So I put a shout-out on social media. And this person come out tops a few strings with some connections and made it happen. His life and work has probably been spoken about more than anyone on this podcast. So, sit down, get comfy and come with me into the studio of Gary Mansfield. How did you come by picking who was going to be your 100th guest? Well, I did mention on social media a little while ago that the 100th um, episode was looming. So, I put a shout out to see who anyone wanted on. Your name came up tops. Oh, that's nice to hear. Although I... <laughs> I did vote 27 times myself. <laughs> I was going to get someone else to um, interview you, but I thought, oh, I'll do it myself. It'd be fun, wouldn't it? I couldn't think of anyone better qualified. I mean, I've followed your work from, from pretty much day one, really. Oh, man, that's nice to hear. Cheers. I don't know if you know the format, but I've got seven questions that I ask each artist. Mm. The first being, how would you explain what you do to someone that didn't know your work? Didn't know my work. Um, Well, all of my work, no matter what project it is I'm on, they're all based on three foundations. That is time, empathy and identity. Yeah, I can see that. And have you always made your work with those three elements in them? Well, I've never really thought, well, what can I make that's got one of those three elements in it? Just every idea that I always have is always based around those three. And there's very often some sort of um, social injustice involved as well. Oh, yeah, like the time series of drawings you're doing at the moment. Yeah, if I come to those in a sec. Oh, sorry. So it's pretty much mixed media, but depending on the um, idea I've got at the time, it's whatever material is best for mm. that. Well, I've seen your studio here. You've got lots of barbed wire. Yeah, I started working with barbed wire uh, maybe a year or so ago. I started doing this lettering. As you can as you can see here, um, I was going to make some barbed wire lettering that was um, sort of like faux neon from a distance. I wanted it to look like neon, but when you got close up, you realised it was um, just barbed wire that was painted. Oh, like a tromloy Yeah, exactly that. I see there's a couple of dark stars left over there. I had one a couple of years ago. I still put it up on my tree this year. Yeah, that was a little impromptu thing I'd done just as a little experiment a couple of years ago, and they flew out. Yeah, I like the idea of using barbed wire, so from a distance, um, it just looks like a, a linear piece of wire, or as I was saying earlier, neon. But then when you get closer to it, you realise it's barbed wire. I do like the sort of perverse juxtaposition there, you know? Yeah, sort of like a hidden well factor. I know you've told it a million times before, Um and Well, most of our listeners have heard it a million times as well, but for anyone who's listening who may not have heard the story, how you got into art in the first place, would you be able to give us a quick run-through of that? Yeah, of course. Try and keep it short, though. Uh, yeah, I can't guarantee anything, though. So, I've not always been an artist. Um, from when I left school up until my mid-twenties, I was a criminal, um, mainly just using my size, doorman, bodyguard, debt collector, that sort of thing. Um but since I was at school, I'd been selling fake clothing. So I slowly moved my way up that ladder, um, started working for these new guys. I was going to Liverpool to visit some friends. Um, they asked if I could go and um, deliver some of their labels that go in the back of their clothing to their guys in Birmingham to be stitched in their garments. Mm. So I was like, well, yeah, it's on the way. I'll get a couple of hundred quid for it. Why not? Went to pick it up. Put the bags of stuff in the back of my car. Um, Long story short, before I knew it, my back window was being put through, my door was being swung open, dragged out the car, and when I get to the police station, find out there's £4.2 million pounds worth of Class A drugs. Couldn't pass it off as a personal stash? Yeah, know what I mean. Get put in prison, 14 years. Oh man, bit of a kick in the teeth, right? So I end up going to a high security prison on the Isle of Sheppey called Swaleside. I mean, I was a different person then to the person that's sort of sitting here with you now. But I ended up falling pretty much into the art class. The tutor there was absolutely brilliant, a guy called Dougie Spooner. Before long, I'd fallen in love with art. As you do. And that was it. I intended to spend the rest of my sentence, like five and a half years, painting and sculpting away in a traditional sense. But then you come by corresponding with the YBAs. Yeah. So I saw the catalogue for the Sensations exhibition, which was on at the RA in, I don't know what it was, must have been 97, 98, 98, I think. Um, and I didn't appreciate anything that was in there. It was all of the art that anyone can make, you know. Yeah. As far as I was concerned, it was just a big painting of the beast, Myra Hindley, a tent with loads of people's names in, and a sheep cutting off. Yeah, I know you You joke sometimes about someone being on D-Wing in for a similar offence. Oh yeah, cheers for that, I won't bother. Sorry. So do you want me to tell this story? You're going to carry on yourself. No, go on, sorry. Yeah, so we often joked about a guy being on D-Wing in for similar. <laughs> <laughs> Classic. Then I was told to take it back to my cell and have a read. You know, sort of like, don't slag it off unless you've got sort of half an understanding of, of the conceptual work, which, you know, I didn't know of at the time. So I did. And in there was a postcard um, being used as a bookmark Mm. and it was an artwork by Mona Hatoum called No Way To. Now, Mona Hatoum was um, Lebanese and she came over to the UK to study Mm. Um, and, of course, she wasn't allowed back and the colander, with nuts and bolts in all of the holes, was meant to be like a dome over her homeland and she couldn't go home and all the entrances and exits were blocked, you know. Yeah, it's one of my favourites. Yeah, and just a few minutes earlier, I was saying, oh, you know, a, a colander and a, a bag of nuts and bolts is, is like a trip down to B&Q and a £10 note, you know? Mm. But then because of where I was, that story resonated with me, you know? And I thought, man, how can she say all of that with just a bag of nuts and bolts and then a household colander? It just it just blew my mind. And it, it sort of unlocked the... um conceptual key in my heart you know mm. and it saw made me see this artwork in a different way and that was it bang I was hooked on conceptual art that's what I wanted to be and and that's why that's why I jokingly referred to myself sometimes as a born-again artist yeah I love that so over the course of a few weeks I ended up writing to 32 artists just asking them for more information on them and their work and I figured that asking, you know, 32 artists, I'm, I'm bound to get at least one answer, you know, fishing with a net instead of a rod. Yeah. But then pretty soon, um, a parcel turns up from Angus Fairhurst and Sarah Lucas. I mean, I was pretty shocked. Because, like, you know, they've just got a letter from this guy who's in prison. I could have been a like a murdering rapist for all they knew. Yeah, it restores your faith in humanity a bit, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah, it does. Then it was like Gavin Turk... Marcus Harvey, Mark Wallinger, amazing. Cornelia Parker, Rachel Whiteread, Gillian Waring. I mean, they all wrote to me with catalogues and press packs and sort of like letters of encouragement, you know. Mm. And then I'd reply to say thank you. And then um, a little while later, I'd get another one in the post, you know, we'd have had another show. I mean, Gary, <laughs> Gary Hume even sent me in a, um, a little artwork that I had hanging in my cell for a few years. Love it. What was it? It was like a little secret artwork he had done with um, lemon juice. You know, like how the spies used to. Then you put it under the grill and, and then the artwork appears, you know. Love it. I mean, not many people can say that they've got a Gary Hume anyway, but let alone when they was in prison. Yeah, and then that was it. I had this group of artists who seemed to capture me just at the right time when I wanted to change from being a criminal to being something different or better or, or whatever way you want to look at it, you know. Yes, that was like a sort of surrogate family. Exactly, a surrogate everything. Well, from knowing your story, I know that the next two questions, you can sort of combine in once because I, I know myself that it was um, just a very short time period. But question number two is, when was your first interest in art, stroke, who was your most influential artist? And the third is... When did you realise you wanted to be an artist? Well, yeah, I'd fallen in love with art. I've, I found something that I was good at, other than crime. Well, because of where I was, I obviously wasn't any fucking good at that either. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, we've already ascertained where I fell in love with, with art, or we've already ascertained where my first interest in art was. But my most influential artist, without doubt, Ray Richardson, because I'd always thought that an artist was a white, middle-class man, um, very well-educated. So as much as I'd fallen in love with art, I did feel like there's no way I fitted into that category, you know. Yeah. So Dougie bought in a, um, a video for us to watch called Oil on Canvas, which looked at all seven elements of a of a drawing or painting. And the particular two shows was on composition and perspective. The first one we watched was perspective, which was um, Patrick Hughes, who does reverse perspective, and he was white, middle class, middle aged very well educated, and spoke beautifully. And as much as I loved his work, again, that just underlined what I already thought an artist was. Um, and then that afternoon, we watched the one on composition. And first of all, we saw this painting of a... It was like a circus scene, and it was it was dark, it was gnarly, it was menacing, and it had a sort of cinematic quality to it, and straight away I liked it. Um, and then it went to Ray Richardson, who's from Woolwich, South East London, and he started talking, he sounded just like me. Eureka moment, right? Yeah, and I was like, if someone like him, whos I figured he's obviously famous because he's on the telly, if he can make it, then yeah, there's hope for me. So I wrote to both of them artists via Channel 4 or or whatever channel um, it happened to be on, and lo and behold, a few weeks later, I got um, letters and parcels back from both of those. Was that before or after the YBAs? Ah, oh, before, quite a while before. They were the second and third artists that I'd wrote to. The first was Dougie Fields. Mm. And when I when I wrote to Dougie, I'd seen him in a newspaper, um, Zandra Rhodes. The um, clothes designer was talking about him. And she just mentioned her friend, Dougie Fields, who lived in Earls Court, London. And there was um, a painting of Dougie's just behind Zara, um, Zandra. And um, ask Dougie yourself. I sent him a letter that just had Dougie Fields... Artist, Earl's Court, London, and got there. Wouldn't happen now that the um, Royal Mail was privatised. Fucking hell, I know. So, yeah, the answer to that question is Ray Richardson, hands down. And even now, when I get a bit of artist block, um, Ray is still one of my go-to artists to to sort of get a bit of inspiration and stoke up the engine, you know? And did that change your attitude towards art and making art when you realised that it sort of was accessible for you? art should be accessible to all. Mm. A lot of people like me are scared of going into galleries, intimidated, you know, and it shouldn't be the way. I mean, it fucking changed my life. Changed it 180 degrees. It's a beautiful thing to have in your life and more people should encounter it. Yeah, I agree. So by this time, I'd started a a GMVQ at the time, the intermediate one, um, and that was an 18-month course. So I had to do at least 18 months in Swellside, like this top security prison. So... All in all, I spent about I think it was three years, four months in Swaleside. And normally when the assessors come to look at someone's artwork, they'll have um sort of two students showing their artwork in the in the art class, which was fairly big. Um they'd sort of have two walls each, you know. Um but because I was so prolific, when they come <laughs> when the assessor come to see my work, I had the whole classroom to myself. There was a massive big lower foyer in the education block. I had all of the walls there. It was going up the stairs and then um, on the walls of the upper foyer as well. It was fucking everywhere. Brilliant. It were not as if you didn't have much time on your hands. Exactly, and I was obsessed with it as well. And the thing is, I'd set myself a little goal, you know. Um, I said to myself that I'm going to sort of try as hard as I can give absolute 100% um, to this course and if I don't get the top marks then I'm obviously not good enough Mm. but I also said to myself that if I do get it that's it I'm going to do the next course and then I'm going to go for a degree and fucking hell no one in my family had ever had a degree you know yeah same here so I have the assessor standing in front of me and he's like is this all of your work my god I've never seen so much from one person and we sort of had to leave him alone and he's gone and had a look around. When he's come back, he said, um, That, that, and that, because I had it all sort of um, set out into different areas, you know. He went, um, That is perfect for your advanced level. He said, And that's going up the stairs w- would be an ideal project at university level. I was like, Fucking hell. I think I might have even pull this off here. Amazing. Um, and then when the. Um, Results come through. That was it. I got a distinction on every level. And fucking hell, man, I'm telling you, I went back to that wing with my chin up, my fucking shoulders back, and it felt like I'd had a a weight taken off my shoulders because I knew that the life of crime was behind me and I had a new life in front of me. Brilliant. And how were the guys on the wing? Oh, man, they were loving it because they knew that that is what I wanted to do. And that I was going for it, and especially with all these artists writing to me as well, you know. It was the perfect um, bunch of people to be pushing me forward, you know. Super. And then because I got that distinction level, then that pretty much entitled me to go down from a B category prisoner to a C category, so I could go into a prison that had a little bit more freedom, you know. So I had an ask around and got told that um, Downview in Sutton, Surrey had an art class there with a tutor qualified to do the advanced. So I put in to go there. How did you find that? How did I find it? It turns out that the person in charge of the um, art class there, no disrespect to her, she had less qualifications than Dougie. There was no one there to teach me it. So I was there for at least nine months, waiting in limbo, you know. So what did you do? Was there at least an art class there? Yeah, there was an art class there, and the tutor was great. But I just couldn't do this advanced level, you know? So you had to wait at least nine months before you could start it into another prison? No, I wasn't going to wait. I got hold of Dougie, and Dougie sent me through the, um, I don't know what you called it, but the the book that the tutors go by for the distinction level, you know, for the advanced level, you know? So I spent a couple of months trying to figure out, um, because it was a load of um, speak that I didn't really understand, you know? there was, So I had to sort of get to grips with all that. Man, I feel for you. So after 10 months of being there, um, then I was allowed up to an open prison called Spring Hill in Aylesbury. And there, after a couple of months, I was allowed to go to college. And how did that go? Yeah, it was great, but it was fraught with problems, first of all. I mean, I'd been been banged up for five years at this point. I hadn't been around normal people. And man, when I went for my, um, my interview at Aylesbury College... I had to walk down this big, long pathway down onto the um, main road to get the bus. You know, I'm feeling good. It's my first day out on my own for, like, over five years. And then I saw the bus coming towards me. Man, my heart was racing. What do you think it was, like a panic attack? Panic attack? It was more like a heart attack. (laughs) So after being at Aylesbury College for a few months, I got my GMVQ there, which enabled me to, to get into university, you know. And how were the other students here when you told them that you was from the local prison? Oh man, they was all pretty cool with it, you know, they were all sort of 17 and 18 and then all of a sudden this bloke turns up, you know, um, from the local jail, it was more of a novelty, you know. So it was a new experience for all of you. Yeah, and talking of new experiences, on my very first, <laughs> on my very first day at... I've walked into the, one of the downstairs studios and all the easels are up. So I've sort of gone and stood by one, pinning this bit of paper up onto the board. And then this woman has walked in, peeled off her dressing gown and sat down, stark bollock naked. <laughs> Life drawing on your first day at college, eh? I mean, man, that was the first naked woman i 'd seen in five years that weren 't in a fucking magazine. oh, something else that made you definitely want to be an artist, eh yeah, the tutor she knew what she obviously knew what I was thinking. she's looked over and given me like this big beaming smile, you know, and as bad as it sounds i was having I was having trouble concentrating <laughs> so much though that when Naomi came over the the tutor. Um she said you want to pay a bit more attention to the breast. I said <laughs> I said it's because I'm paying so much attention to the fucking breast that I can't draw the bloody thing. <laughs> During like the holidays, you know, I'd have to stay in the jail. So what Naomi done, she wrote me a letter telling the um education department at the prison that um all of the art class over the Easter holidays would be going into London to visit um, galleries and exhibitions as part of their college course. What, and they wasn't? No, nah, was they? Fuck. she just done it so that I could go to a, an exhibition. She knew that I'd never been into a gallery before. Superb. Yeah, it was amazing. And they, they fell for it. I mean, you know, why wouldn't they? It sounds kosher, doesn't it? So how did your first gallery experience go? What galleries did you go to first? The first place I went was Gary Humes' studio when he used to be at um, Hoxton Square... Um, at that point, you know, it, it hadn't gone all trendy, it was still the old Hoxton that I'd knew before, you know, hence Gary being there, because it was a big, cheap accommodation. But, unfortunately, he wasn't in at the time, so I went just round the corner to Patrick Hughes' studio, knocked on the door, introduced myself. Brilliant, and was he pleased to see you? Oh, man, it was as if I'd known him forever. He brought me in, you know, like, introduced me to all the people that worked for him. I was there for ages. Do you still hear from him now? Yeah, him and Ray I've never really lost contact with. And how was your first gallery experience? Fucking intimidating. <laughs> was it? What one did you go to? Tate Britain. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and I stood outside at the bottom of those steps feeling fucking intimidated. And how was it when you went in? Well, I walked inside, and I was expecting something to happen, you know. Um, went walking down that central corridor, and then I've looked right... And my breath got taken away. There was a Francis Bacon. Which one? One of the Pope. So I went walking in towards this Francis Bacon painting. And just in front of it was one of the benches, you know. Mm. So I've sat on there. I've just looked at it. And then I've stood up and I've gone up over to the painting. I'm sort of just looking at every brush mark and, and all of these different marks on the painting. And then I've just sat down. And then my eyes started welling up. And it was like, yeah, that's that. That sort of hallelujah moment I was waiting for, you know? Oh, man, yeah, we've all had that. Yeah, so that's pretty much how my first um, visit to a gallery went. Ended in tears. (laughs) So did you go to university from that prison? No, I moved to another prison in um, Richmond called Latchmere House. Richmond? What, on the Thames? Yeah. They put the prisons in all the nice areas, didn't they? Yes, only the best for the criminal classes. So how long did you have left in prison when you started university? Um... I started about two, two and a half weeks before I got released. Oh, I thought you were going to say a couple of terms. No, no. So I waited till the start of the um, of the first term, but I went to work on a building site for about six months just to get a bit of um, money under my belt, you know, for when I got released. And was the experience of going to university any different to that that you'd had a few months before when you attended college? Man, it was totally different. What I should have done, and I should have had a year out first, just so I could get used to being free, you know? Because as much as I loved the first year at university, it fucked me up in the second year. It sort of all caught up with me, and I had a sort of mini meltdown, you know? Yeah, I can see that. How was it going from sort of like one environment to another? Well, the prison environment is obviously very sort of macho and testosterone-fuelled, you know? And then I'm going to, to university, which is very relaxed and liberal. It was... um. It was sort of like running these two parallel lives at once. That was a little bit which was um, a bit of the Ed Yeah, I know what you mean. And I presume you attended a few more exhibitions? Oh, man, yeah, I, I attended loads. I was still getting the, um, the invites off of the other artists, you know. Did you get to meet any of them? Yeah, I'll turn up at the private view with, like, a couple of the other students from the uni. I felt really insecure going up and... Saying hello. I don't know why, because I've I've never been like that before, you know. little bit of that imposter syndrome, was it? Cool, not half. But you're glad you did, though, right? Oh, yeah. Was there any memorable meetings? I do know, it was all pretty memorable, but um, I think the one I liked the most was possibly Sarah Lucas. It was at Tim Noble and Sue Webster's exhibition up in Milton Keynes. And I saw Sarah standing at the top of the stairs, and I think I was with my friend Becky... Um, I went walking up the stairs towards her, and I said, uh, excuse me, Sarah, I don't know if you remember me, but my name's Gary Mansfield from prison. And fucking hell, she just put her drink down, she went, Gary! And she put her arms around me. Oh, nice. Really It really perked me up, you know, because I was, I was feeling so sort of insecure at the time. And there was another one that I've sort of always regretted. Not meeting them, by, by any means, but um, it was at the White Cube. I think it was at Gary Hume's um private view but either way it was Anthony Gormley was there um and I went up and introduced myself and I think Lee Ainsworth was with me at the time we've had a chat and he's given me his personal email address and he said uh send a cv in and I was in my third year at the time and I lost the fucking email address and I didn't follow it up, and I've always regretted that. Well, you don't know what could have been, right? Uh, and the thing is, I don't even know why I was scared of following it up, because its I wouldn't normally be. Again, probably that imposter syndrome. Yeah, probably. Well, I suppose everything happens for a reason. How did your third-year show go? Oh, it went really well. Um, Grayson Perry opened it. Had you written to him from prison? <laughs> no, it was one of the few that I didn't. Can you remember what you put in your third year show? Yeah, I had this bunk bed that I um that I, <laughs> that I went and got from Chelmsford Prison. I um I phoned them up and <laughs> I phoned them up and told them uh, that I'd emailed the prison headquarters in London and asked for a for a bunk bed, and they'd told me to contact my local prison and they'd accommodate me. Um, and I knew that Chelmsford Prison held loads of like broken beds out in a yard. Because, you know, obviously because I'd been there for several months. And I went up and they walked me into the prison to go and pick up one of these bunk beds. Oh man, that must have been strange. And what did you do with a bed? I I bricked up the, the lower bunk. And so the top bunk was perfectly made and the lower bunk was all bricked up with concrete blocks. It was called positive space, negative space. Yeah, I remember you saying that you wanted to revisit that. Yeah, I did get asked to put it in this art trail a few years ago. Um, and it would have been there for, for, for a couple of years, you know. But it, it would have cost about four or £500 to get it made. And I just didn't have the finances at the time. I was properly gutted. Well, again, these things happen for a reason. Will you knock that bollocks on the head? <laughs> Sorry. So what was your next stop on your uh, journey through the art world after your third year show? When I went straight into a degree, again, at the University of East London, I was told I shouldn't do it at the University of East London. I should go somewhere else. But it was a bit hard for me to go anywhere else. I was on probation still for a couple of years. I had a lot of restraints, both financial and domestic, you know. And how did DMA the go there? Oh, it's a bit of a disaster, really. Um, I mean, I was pissed off from the start because the, um, I, was, I only went part-time so that I could go to work and earn some money as well. And the fees went up by 50%, but we had no um, studio space. We didn't even have a locker. I mean, no disrespect to the tutors. I mean, Grenville Davy, Turner Prize winner, was one of our tutors. But when it came to us having talks, sort of like, you know, the classroom stuff, as Mm. it were, we was in a fucking cupboard. What do you mean, a fucking cupboard? I'm telling you, it was a room, probably... 15 feet by 10 but it's where they held all the chairs (laughs) so there were stacks and stacks of chairs everywhere it never even had a door and that's where we were doing our talks you know it was ridiculous again it's nothing to do with the tutors but fucking hell man when you're sitting in a cupboard full of chairs (laughs) and having your fucking lecture it's taking the piss a bit you know (laughs) so how long did you last well it was only about 3 months my partner Jenny fell pregnant at the time yeah. and then it was the the quandary was how do I pay for an MA when I've got a baby coming along so I sort of decided to just walk away from the MA which I've always half regretted and then just go and get a job To be a responsible dad. And what, was that a job within the arts? I knew loads of guys who were running bricklaying firms, so I just phoned one of those up and they'd give me a job as a hod carrier. Mm. And for sort of like £130 a day, it paid more than any of the art jobs anyway, you know? Yeah, I suppose so, but it didn't leave much room to to make your art though, did it? No, that's the thing, I couldn't make any. And because I couldn't make it and I had nowhere to make it and I pretty much didn't have the money to make it, then I I was a bit childish really and... And just ignored art altogether for a few years. I just blanked it altogether, you know, because yeah. because the pain was a bit too much, knowing that I couldn't do it. I've mentioned this before. It was similar to that when you um when you sort of get dumped by a girl, you know, yeah. um, and you see her in the street, and and you get that knotted feeling inside. To stop that feeling, I just cut all ties with it, you know, for for six or seven years, up until the point where you met Tracy Emin. <laughs> yeah, you've heard the story before, right? Yeah, once or twice. But seeing as it's the hundredth episode, feel free to continue. Well, my friendly at this point was working as a technician in a school in Camden, and he'd got tickets to go to a talk in the Foundling Museum. Yeah. And the talk was being given by Tracy Emin, and I didn't know this, but he invited me to the talk, and also to meet the people that he worked with. When I've gone inside, I've seen Tracy sort of walking around and talking to people, and I've sort of tried to to meet her eye and when she did actually see me and she's given a little curious curious look because she hadn't seen me for a few years. I've given a little wave and uh, like we've sort of walked over and started chatting and she, she mentioned that she hadn't seen me for a while um, and then I just gave her this noble story about I gave up the MA and haven't worked in art for a, for a couple of years just because I've I've had a baby come along and I've got no money to make art and nowhere to make it. And then, uh, yeah, she sort of pretty much turned on me, really. (laughs) Yeah, she was like, well, art has made you change your life and what the art world's done for you, and you've turned (laughs) your back on it. You should have more respect for it. And she sort of, like, beat me into submission, you know. Being bullied by one of Britain's best-known artists, eh? So, yeah, that's how I got back into art, six or seven years after I stopped. I mean, I know what's coming next, but for the listener, could you tell them what project you come up with to re-enter the art world? Yeah, sure. Well... Mental health has always been a, a big thing for me. There was a, a few people I saw while I was in there who literally, you know, left in body bags. Um, and a couple of my friends have taken their own lives after leaving prison. Yeah. And prison being like a really hard place to, to battle with mental health because, you know, you've got everything against you, you know. Hear that? Combined with the chip I had on my shoulder, convinced that people would treat me different because of my background, you know. And did they? No. That's the things with chip on your shoulders. You can't see them because they're not real, you know. Mm. But I come up with this idea based around the proverb, never judge a man till you walk a mile in his shoes. Yeah. Because when I was away and people were feeling a bit down and agitated, I used to tell them to sort of write a letter to themselves or the person that they've got the ump with, get everything out on that bit of paper, but don't post it the next day. At least that way it's, it's sort of got it all off, all the stress and tension. It's got that out of your body, you know. Yeah. And it always used to help. Well, the projects i come up with, Walk a Mile, so what i have done, I went on to Twitter and asked people to um, send me a pair of their old shoes and a wrongdoing, a a little story or a a, a few lines of text telling about something they've done wrong in the past, something they've regretted, some problem that they've carried around on their shoulders for years, you know. Mm. And, well, bringing in another proverb, a problem aired is a problem halved. So it's sort of helping everyone, you know. Oh, I love it. And just as I was about to go live with it, um, on a Saturday afternoon it was, I was speaking to Ray Richardson over the phone and asking him um, about this project, what he thought of it. He thought it was a, a a great idea. So I put the first shout out on Twitter. And within about 10 minutes, while I was still speaking to Ray, someone said they'd send me their shoes and a story. It turned out to be Horace Panther from the specials. How fucking good is that? Oh, amazing. I love the specials. Same year I grew up with them. So that was it. And how many pairs of shoes were you after getting? Well, I initially thought I'd do sort of like 10, 15, 20, however many came. And I got up to about, I think it was about 20. Um, and then we went on holiday for two weeks and when I come back, we had a <laughs> we had a load of those slips through the door from the <laughs> postman that there'd been a few parcels turned up and no one was there to receive them. Yeah. So then it took me over sort of 25, for instance. I thought, oh, I'll go for 50. And then before you know it, I was beyond 50, 60, 70. And how many did you stop at? Well, I intended to definitely stop at 100. But what I'd done, I stopped at 93 because I wanted to invite seven people for the last pairs you know yeah yeah. possibly for a bit of a publicity if it come off as an exhibition you know yeah good idea and how long did that take that was from the winter of 2012 i sent the first ones um i was sent the first ones and it, it this was now sort of like early 2015 so it's like so it's what just over two years i bet you walked in some strange shoes Oh man! I walked in high heels. I walked in baby <laughs> shoes. I'd have to sort of like gaffer tape them to my feet and walk round the house and stuff. Yeah. And a lot of the time, a lot of the time, I'd have to walk round of a night so that no one saw me, you know. <laughs> because walking round my estate with a pair of fucking high heels on, you're going to get looked at, you know. Yeah, it doesn't sound like the best thing to be doing. Could you tell us a story about the policeman when they saw you with the shoes? <laughs> yeah. Well, um, I used to work nights, so I'd get in at sort of like four half four this particular night I've, I've got him from work i'd go down to my car and i had a bag which had the shoes in it the story because this one was ladies shoes it was gaffer tape stanley knife to come off with and i'd always have a i'd have a camera with me to take a photograph of the shoes once i would walked the mile so i had a set half mile so it was half half a mile there half a mile back then i'd read the story yeah so i've done that i've opened my car door sat on the seat, taken a photograph of the shoes and then got the Stanley knife out, cut the gaffer tape, put them back in the bag. But as I've done that, a police car has come into this little car park where the flats were. Sounds ominous. They've stopped, they've come over to me and he's asked why I took a photograph of them as they drove past. I said, I didn't take a photograph of you, and I'm saying it laughing because I know that there's about to be this ridiculous story about to come, which they aren't going to believe, or it's going at least it's going to be hard for me to make them believe it, you know? Yeah. Yeah, so I said, I didn't take a photograph of you, I was taking a photograph of this pair of shoes. So I've opened up the bag. <laughs> now, they've, <laughs> as they've looked in the bag, I've looked in the bag as well, and I'm looking at, at four o'clock in the morning, a letter from a woman, a pair of high heel shoes, gaffer tape, a camera, and a Stanley knife. It looks like a fucking kidnap kit, you know? But they was understanding, though, right? No, they fucking weren't. They weren't having any of it. I said to them, like, are you on Twitter? And they said no, you know, bearing in mind this was probably 2013 at the time, you know. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a
0: professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today.
1: They said no. So I said, look, I've got loads of these pairs of shoes upstairs, which, you know, that, that done me no fucking favours. Yeah, that just got you into more trouble, right? But I said, I can take you upstairs and sort of like, you know, my partner would tell you and, and I took them upstairs and there was the cupboard there and I had all these shoes and then I had all the stories and, you know, it just sort of all fell into place and, you know, they was all right with it and by this time, my partner had woke up anyway <laughs> and, um, yeah, she told the, the officers exactly what I'd um told them before, you know. Could have got you back in there, eh? But genuinely, it could have, couldn't it? Yeah, that's the sort of stuff you read about in the papers. Exactly. And what did you do with that project? Oh, man, that's... That's a fucking sore point. What I'd done, I'd seen an author on TV one Sunday morning um, publicising his book on empathy mm-hmm. and he was saying how he's trying to get more empathy in the world. Always a good thing. Yes. So what I'd done, I contacted him to tell him about my project. So his name was Roman It. He's um, mentioned it on Twitter. He's, he's retweeted some of the tweets I'd done saying about how this project was a perfect project for empathy i got loads of interaction from his followers. Oh, that's fair enough. Yeah, it's lovely. Fast forward six months. I get a a phone call off of a guy who had interviewed me previously via um, BBC's World Service. Mm. He'd applied for a job as an audio technician at a thing called the Empathy Museum. He said they were doing a project called A Mile in My Shoes where they were... Um, going to record someone telling a story about their life, and then getting a pair of shoes off of them at the same time. And then the public would be wearing the shoes, listening to the story as they walked a mile. Yeah. But I thought, well, I don't own the proverb, and and you know anyone can come up with an idea. He recommended I try to stop it on what grounds? That's exactly what I said. I said, well, I don't own the proverb. He said, yeah, but they mentioned you during the meeting. And they'd said, it's nothing to do with a project that's running parallel online. Man, that's not good. No, I did start feeling a little bit cheated. Yeah, that's understandable. What'd you do? I said to this guy, I'll have a look at the Empathy Museum online. I'll, I'll get back to him and tell him what my decision is. Go on. I looked at it and it was a big machine. You know, it had a board of trustees. Yeah. It had There was lots of people involved in this museum. And I'm like, well, surely they wouldn't nick an idea. And then I've come to the um, CEO and founder. And it's only that fucking Roman Kersenik. What, the one you'd contacted months previously? Yes. Contacted him about my story. He'd replied to me. He'd retweeted it. He'd tweeted about my story. And he's at the fucking top of the tree. Fucking hell, man. What did you do? Well, I sort of had a look at me what my options were. Yeah, You know, how I can react to this. And, and I phoned this Rob back up and... And told him my decision. And I said, like, I think all I'm going to do is just run with it. Hmm. He was like, no, nah, no, nah, you got to stop it. You know, it's taking the piss. And I said, look, I said, this is a fucking machine. It's got loads of people working there. It's got a board of trustees. I'm just going to come across like a bitter and twisted ex-prisoner, you know. And I'm not sure that I can handle that. What, so you done nothing? No, I said, I think the best thing for me to do would be to contact him but ask if I can be part of their project. Mm. And hopefully, you know, if I, if I am able to get involved, yeah. because it's a big machine, maybe I can get a few sort of like scraps off the back of it, you know? And how were they with that? Well, yeah, they invited me along. They recorded my story. Mm. I gave them a pair of shoes and I was part of the opening. They had a massive container turned into a shoe box. Loads of people there, you know, there was press, there was everyone there. And there was also this Roman was there as well. Did you get to meet him? Yeah, I spoke to Claire, who was the director of the gallery, and she went to introduce me to him. And how was he? Well, he was fine. She's introduced me to him. I've shaken his hand. I said, I'm Gary, one of the storytellers. How are you? Very nice to meet you. Then I said to him that I was the one who contacted him about my project to do with shoes. From that moment, he couldn't look at me in the (laughs) fucking... You know, when you're in jail, around people, 24 hours a day you sort of become accustomed to people's change of mood. Yeah, Now, yeah. I just carrying on talking nicely, talking about my project, talking about the similarities with his project, thanking him for um, retweeting my messages. And this is a guy to do with empathy, right? Yeah, that's another thing. And I knew that it was a really good thing, that it could really help people, you know. And I did think, well, I can help, you know, a couple of people out of this 100. Yeah. They've got the connections, the money, and the backing, to sort of take this all over the world sort of thing. You know, it could help thousands of people. So that was another reason that I sort of didn't question it and didn't fight it. And did you never mention it again? Well, yeah, I did. Um, I listened to Claire Platy, the um, director, and she was on a podcast, and um, well, she was talking about the museum and um, how important empathy is, and um, then she started talking about the shoe project. And I had a sort of like a a little flutter in my heart, you know, a little smile come on my face as she's talking about the project. And then the the, um, interviewer asked where the idea come from. And then she sort of just hesitated and said, oh, it's an old Indian proverb. And we decided to do this. We decided to do that. Really? Yes, really. And how was you when you heard that? Well, to tell you the truth, it fucking hit me hard in the heart, you know. And then it started playing on my mind. And then it was getting me down. And then I started fucking spiralling and spiralling, you know, and going into a, going into a dark place Shit. over the back of this, you know. Oh, man, who'd think that empathy could do that to you? Yeah, I know, ironic, right? But it got to a point where I had to go and speak to someone about it. Mm. And they said, if I contacted them and sort of mention it, that might be the, you know, that may be the release for me and that would be the thing for me to do. So I did. I wrote Claire and Roman a really nice email. I wasn't being... Um, pushy yeah, or, yeah. or negative, you know, but I did say that, I said, well, I spoke to Roman about my project in early 2015, and then later on that year, you had your project, I got told that um, you'd mentioned me um, during your meeting, yeah. um, so that you was aware of my project, um, it went forward, he's gone to several countries all around the world. I said, I'm not after any money or my name in lights or anything yeah. like that. I said, but I'd like just a little bit of recognition somewhere in the in the text for this um, project just to say it's it's come off the back of an idea by artist Gary Mansfield. I mean, they obviously agreed, yeah? Claire came back and said that she's been an artist for 20-odd years. She wasn't aware of my project when she started theirs but only became aware of mine a little while later. And did you not believe that? Well, that's the quandary I had, because she was a well-known curator Mm. and artist, and a really nice person. But on the flip side to that, I'd mentioned it to Roman, who was fully aware of the project, and him being the CEO, when he would have been made aware of that project, that's when he should have stepped in and said, oh, I know this project, It, it belongs to this guy called Gary Mansfield. And what did you do from there? Well, they invited me to go to meet them. But again, I just thought, well, that's the powerful fucking museum just pushing down the artist again and it brought back all that thing of when I was arrested just being used by them drug dealers you know and how's it been left well the only way it could be left I didn't want to get all bitter and twisted about it and I know that I sound like I am now it just annoys me when I'm talking about it understandably so but this wouldn't be the first time this has happened to an artist you know oh no but I thought I left all that fucking world of backstabbing behind me but if Claire was genuine All right, well, even if Claire was genuine, Roman should have brought it up when he heard about the project. I'm never going to win. I'll just be looked at as I originally thought as the bitter and twisted ex-prisoner. Yeah, yeah, hard one. And where's that project at at the moment? Did it get left at 93? Yeah, it's still there. I'd like to do something with it. But now people will think I'm stealing the idea off of the (laughs) Empathy Museum. You do sound a little bit bitter and twisted, to be fair. And you can go fuck yourself as well. Well, I know that next came your Face Value exhibition in, what was that, November 2016. How did that come about? Face Value. Well, I'm proper proud of that, um, that little creation. And even the way it came about was quite a thing. Do you know the American actor Michael K. Williams? No, I don't think so. Did you ever watch um, Boardwalk Empire or The Wire? Yeah. He played Omar in The Wire. Everybody knows Omar. Yeah, well, Michael and I were going to do a project about scars. Nice. Because Michael's got a big scar from his forehead down to his chin. What, that's real? I thought it was makeup. So did I at first, until I saw him in Bald Empire. Well, I had two friends years ago who both had like a, a similar scar on their side of the face. Mm. And it was like a J-shaped scar, you know? The guy had got his in a fight, but the girl, she had hers in a car accident. Now when people saw the guy with a scar on his face, and because it was quite a thick scar, yeah. they was a bit standoffish, you know. People would get a bit intimidated by him, even though he was the victim. Whereas with the girl, when they saw her, they would feel a bit of sort of sympathy and yeah. empathy yeah. towards her because she's got this big scar on her face. Oh right. So you was looking at the perception of that scar by us. So we was gonna do this project where Digitally, I take this scar off of him. And then with the surge in body manipulation, we wanted to make it look like he had paid to have this scar surgically put on his face. Oh, I like it. But we met up in Kensington while he was in the UK filming. And I told him about um, the empathy towards the girl, but fear towards the guy. Mm. And that really did spark up a conversation between the two of us. I can't believe you were sitting in a coffee shop in Kensington with Omar. No, not can I. But when I was with Michael, I was telling him about Katie Piper, who was a British model who had her face severely disfigured yeah. um, when some piece of shit paid someone to throw some acid in her face several years ago. And later on that evening, after I'd left Michael, I was thinking about Katie Piper, and no disrespects to Katie, but her profile was has gone up tremendously since the attack. Yeah. So I asked myself the question, would it have gone up that high if it wasn't for the attack? And then I compared that to myself. The intervention by those guys that put me into prison. So was that seven years in prison detrimental to me as a person? Yeah. Or did it benefit me as a person? So that was the parallels between Katie's story and mine. I like it. So we've both benefited by something that's ruined our lives. Yeah. And uh, honestly, I'm not, trying to, I'm not trying to say for one moment mine was as bad as Kate is. But that made me thinking about a little phrase. Identity changed at the hands of another. So the idea was this. Yeah, this has come up several times on the podcast. Do you want me to tell it or skip it? No, no, go on. You tell it. It's your episode. So me having my identity changed at the hands of another, did it add value to me as a person or detract value on the whole? I'd say it added a lot of value. Did it add value to Katie Piper as a person? Well, that's not for me to answer. But that is the question that was running around in my mind. So, I figured using an artwork as a metaphor for a person, get an artwork from another artist and damage it in some way. Within context of that artwork, because I am an artist and I would be mark-making, would my contribution to that artwork increase or decrease the value? Which is the same question I'm talking about, mine and Katie's identity. So, after running through all this with Lee Ainsworth... Your sidekick. Yeah. So, again, I asked Ray Richardson. And then I thought I'd ask Sarah Lucas. So I contacted Sarah and I told her about the idea. And she said she loved it and she'd be a part of it and she'd make something for me. Brilliant. So, fast forward a few weeks later... I had to go down to Sadie Coles to pick up what she had made for me. And it turned out to be a sculpture called Titbricks. And it was worth £18,000. Fucking hell. And you had to damage it? Yes. I was shitting myself. How many artists did you get involved? Well, I was recommended to get no more than seven because that was a comfortable amount to hold. But I ended up having 30 artists. <laughs> That's quite a few artists to put on, eh? Yeah. How did you get the funding? I funded it myself. I knew it was a really good idea. It was worth the investment. So once Sarah was on board, I contacted Gavin Turk. Um, From Gavin Turk, it went on to Marcus Harvey, who donated a a Myra print. There was Carrie Reichart, Sarah Maple. Sarah Maple was on the podcast just a few episodes ago. Yeah, listen, she's amazing. Yeah, Noel Fielding gave an artwork. Vic Reeves. Brilliant. Nicola Green, Jessica Albarn, Jake and Dinos. Loads of artists. It was amazing. Quite a thing how you got loads of artists to um agree to have you damage their work. Yeah, I know it was quite strange. I mean, I did think, would I let an artist do it to me? And the answer was yes. I mean, a lot of artists said no, and the funny thing was, at the end of the exhibition, which was a, a great success, artists asked if they could be in the second one. What you had no intention of doing a second exhibition? No, none whatsoever. And if I was going to do it again. It'd have to be with different artists, I presume. How many of them asked to be involved again? Actually, I think it was 13. Brilliant. It obviously connected with a lot of people. For the first show, we was in the Strand Gallery, just off Trafalgar Square. Um, And we wasn't able to have that venue for the second show. So I got told by Ben and Riker that I should go and speak to Dario from Jealous. Brilliant. So that's what I did. Went to see Dario. Loved the idea. We agreed to put the second show on there. When was that? We agreed on March 2018. Great venue. Great team. Oh, man, I love the guys at Jealous. They're all amazing. And what, you damaged all the artwork for the second show? No. There was a little shift in concept for the second one. What I decided was, because there was so much pressure on me as the assailant to damage the artwork, Mm. I thought I'd share that with other people as well. So this time, I took it up to 60 artists. 60? Yes, I asked 30 artists to donate an artwork, and each artwork would be handed over to another artist to make a collaborative piece of work for So there's that little shift of power. The donating artist is feeling quite vulnerable, whilst the artist who's doing the collaborative work initially feels like they're the one with the power, until they start to consider how they're going to make this artwork. Do they make it a 50-50 collaboration? Ah. Or are they polite and give the majority to the donating artist? Nice. So you have a definite shift of power between the victim and the assailant. And how did that go down with both sets of artists? Um, I mean, some of them just handed it over and the value from that artwork was gone for them then, you know? Yeah. But the manipulating artists... Man, I had a couple of them contact me and said that they're not sure they want to go ahead because they couldn't take the responsibility. Superb. Just the action you were looking for, right? Definitely. And we done Face Value 3 the year later. And Face Value 4? Oh, well, yeah, I was talking about that to Dario around about November 2019. Dario was up for it. I just had to get the funding. And was you able to get that? Well, yeah, I got promised the funding for a company called Logan Sinclair. They're a sort of headhunting recruitment company for finance firms in the city. Oh, shifting to the city, man, eh? But he said we'd, we'd come to the decision that the artists would get 50%, the charity would get 50%, and we would get a, a donation from the company just for putting the show on. It sort of ticked every box, you know, mm. supporting fellow artists and charities. Beautiful idea. And how did that go? So he said he'll get funding to put on a a trial exhibition to show these future investors. So that was in November 2019. Coming into 2020, Dario wants to know what dates we want for face value 4. So I contact Logan Sinclair. And? Emailed him. Phoned him. No reply. I think I can see where this is going. Exactly. So fast forward a year later, what's he had to say since? Nothing. The man hasn't even contacted me. That's the trouble with the people with the money. They don't give a fuck for people. It's echoing the Empathy Museum. Tell me about it. And what's happening with that project now, the exhibitions for the charities? Oh, I'll still go forward with it. You'll have to tell me how you get on. You'll be the first one to find out. <laughs> Tidy. Gary, which piece that you've created has got the strongest emotional connection? Strongest emotional connection. That's got to be my shirt. Prison shirt, as it was... a. Uh, initially called it's now called i'm perfect Mm. i had the idea while i was in prison and i couldn't make it until i got to university because i wanted to make it out of bronze and it's just a simple folded prison shirt although unlike the ones that you see in the shops that are crisp and pristine this one shows its folds and creases and defects i see it as a sort of metaphorical self-portrait yeah definitely a reflection of of how I see myself, or how I saw myself at that time. Where it's a reflection of myself, unlike the shirts that you see in the shops, which are pristine, when you get a little deeper, or unfold them, unpin them, you'll see that all the creases and defects are are around the back, hidden away. Whereas, Whereas I've always been a bit of an open book, and quite honest about my faults. And it's probably a little something to do with a a chip on my shoulder telling me that, that when I got out and entered this new world that people would distrust me because of my criminal record, which hasn't been the case. But um this concept was created with with that in mind. Um and because I was crossing over from one personality of me to another, yeah. I was in a, a, a bit of a dark place. You know, I was I was going through quite a an emotional personal change, you know. Um, but the one I've seen isn't bronze. It was um, it was black resin. Well, because they were an edition of seven and made of bronze, they were very expensive and wasn't accessible to many people, you know. So I figured of, of making some in uh, a black resin called Onyx resin. These were a lot more affordable. Um, I've done an edition of seven with four APs. Four APs? Yeah, well, the idea was that I wanted... Um, each of the seven to be unique, slightly different from the last. So the idea was um, the first four castings I would just rip the latex mould off and each time ripping it or tearing it a little so that the next casting was different from the last. Just like every year of the seven years I served, I was slightly different from the person a year before, you know. Yeah, I've noticed you work a lot in 7s and 14s. Yeah, that's because I got sentenced to 14 years and served 7. And also, with uh, 4 APs, that gave you 11 artworks to sell, rather than just 7. Yeah, there was an added bonus, and uh, and I'll take this opportunity to say that there's still one of those <laughs> remaining, so, so contact me on Instagram if you'd like to buy one. And why did it change from Prison Shirt to um, I'm Perfect or Imperfect? Whichever one of those you said? No, it's either depending on your perception of me. I'm perfect and imperfect is spelt the same way. Mm. It depends on which direction you're looking at me. Yeah. I'm either a perfect representation of me or an imperfect representation of me. And you said that that the idea came during that dark transition from one person to another. Is that why you created it in this black onyx resin? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And what I've done as well, which uh, which only the people that have purchased one of these are aware of, I um, I wrote a little poem that was called I'm Perfect or Imperfect. And because this poem was written at such a dark time in my life, it was really quite a private thing, you know. That's why I decided just to give it to people that um, bought the artwork, so that it just bolstered a story behind the sculpture that they've just purchased from me, you know. Yeah, of course. Do you um do you know the poem off the top of your head? No, I don't know it off the top of my head. But um, it always takes me to a to a bit of a dark place, you know, whenever I read it. Would you be able to read it to us now? <laughs> no, it's, as I said, it always takes me to a to a little bit of a a dark place, you know. Not even because it's the hundredth episode. But um, I'm not saying it's a great poem. Just in context, next to this artwork, they make a good marriage, you know. But I've got it here. Oh, thanks, it's appreciated. No, go on, that's alright. Right. I'm perfect or imperfect, depends on one's perception. The shirt was cast with creases bare to ask that very question. A prison shirt, no less, it tells an artist's tale how an identity was stolen with cowardice betrayal. I'm perfect or imperfect, depends on one's perception. Liberty gone, a man condemned by another man's deception. The darkest hour comes just before the dawn, historian Fuller said. Seven years of fourteen spent waking in a prison bed. I'm perfect or imperfect, depends on one's perception. Discovering art had changed my life, I slowly found redemption. It broke down the walls and freed my mind. The darkness became light. A man reborn with identity changed almost overnight. Brilliant. I'm perfect or imperfect depends on one's perception. I gave this shirt embedded meaning from its very conception. Life's not fair, we all have faults. Some we try to hide. I put mine on show for all to see. I'm an artist that's been inside. I'm perfect or imperfect, depends on one's perception. I bear a cross that shouldn't be mine, nor should of those years' detention. With my sight I witnessed sorrow, my hearing witnessed pain. My hands now tell of that injustice, so it never need happen again. I'm perfect or imperfect, depends on one's perception. This shirt is me, it could have been you. And so I ask the question I'm perfect or imperfect. What is your perception? That was beautiful, Gary, thank you, man. <laughs> oh, you're welcome. You're welcome. But when I read that poem, I can see me laying on the bed writing it in that prison cell. You should do something with that, you know. That is um really quite a powerful thing. And if I felt the energy off of you reading it, I'm I'm sure everyone else will, you know. We'll have a little chat off mic and speak about that. I reckon there's something you could do with that. Yeah, cool. Anyway, Gary, relaxing. What do you do or where do you go to relax? Relaxing? Walking. Walking of a night. I live on a council estate that on three sides of it is fields and farmland. On the other side is the A12 dual carriageway. So it's like a little island. And the circumference is five kilometres. And... A couple of years ago, I took to doing that five-kilometre walk, and I started calling it my night walk. I'd document just the mundane as I went along and and group them all together. It might be manhole covers or broken pieces of fencing. (laughs) Yeah. And just put them all in a group and give them a little cliché title, you know, because everything looks prettier in the dark, right? (laughs) Yeah, me included. (laughs) Um, But, yeah... I, I go on this night walk um, and have a little bit of a emotional reboot as I walk around, you know? Yeah, I've seen a few of those uh, night walk series that you put up and I understand that, um, that you even won a photographic prize with one of those um, photographs you took on your night walk. <laughs> yeah, I forgot about that. There's a block of flats called Highview House. It's 16 storeys high. I walked into the centre of it one night and it's identical to one that I lived in when I was growing up up to yeah. the age of 17. I've looked up and you've seen the the lights and the the sort of golden brickwork going up to the top floor but it made a sort of shape of a crucifix at the top it was a really good a really good picture I put it online and it, it got loads of um loads of positive feedback well a couple of days later when the art car boot fair were about to do their first show at King's Cross they put a little photography competition up for people to submit photographs related to the cross, mm. Christ, that's you know that, that's amazing. <laughs> it was only a couple of days ago that I took the picture. Yeah, you know, I submitted it, and you know a couple of weeks later I found out that I'd won. Superb. What was it you won? Uh, a Chris Levine artwork worth eight grand. Oh, brilliant! Is it still hanging up on the wall? No, no. You know earlier when I said I self-funded yeah. the face value yeah. exhibitions, it was thanks to Chris Levine that that I was able to put them exhibitions on. Selling art to create art, eh? Talking of uh, group exhibitions, if there was you and five other artists, past and present, what would your ideal group show be? I've uh, been preparing for this answer. I know a lot of people get caught on this one, but this one's easy for me. I've got a handful of artists that whenever I get my bit of um, writer's block, as it were, I just look up these artists and that gets my, my juices flowing again. The first is Ray Richardson. Ray's always got half a dozen paintings on the go. And as soon as he opens the door to invite me in and I see the artworks he's working on, I get that same excited buzz as nice. the very first day that I saw his artwork. I love his cinematic approach, mm. his grittiness, the air of menace that's in his artwork. Yeah, yeah, It just doesn't get any better. And I had immense pride in being asked to sit for one of his artworks. You've been in a couple, haven't you? Yeah, well, initially, he asked me to sit for for an artwork to do with Brexit. He wanted the image of a large rotund man sitting in a boat. And I have a a retro um, tracksuit top with Admiral writ on it. Ray thought it would be good to put him in this little rowing boat, but have him on dry land so it's sort of um, up the creek without a paddle, as it were. Yeah. And with me sitting there, he was creating a couple of um, four or five-inch oil studies. And once he'd finished, he turned the easel around to show me. And I'd imagined myself entering the world of Ray Richardson for years and years. Mm. And I was so pleased to have finally got there, you know. Brilliant. And uh, there was a side profile on a, a face on. And he just went, One of them's yours for sitting for me. What one do you want? Well, <sighs> oh, fuck my old boots. I was about to have my own Ray Richardson. Dream come true. Really was a dream come true. And then how was you when you saw the final image? Oh, over the moon. Over the moon. But then unbeknownst to me, he'd used my image in a couple of other paintings. And I wouldn't know about them until he put them up online. And one of them I didn't know about until I went to the private view and I saw a painting <laughs> <of May laughs> hanging on the wall. He'd created Brilliant. it as a, a sort of nod goodbye to the Woolwich Ferry. Because his studio is on the river and, yeah. and you can see the Woolwich Ferry going across. He just put the image of me just coming onto his canvas, you know, so there's only half my face showing. Love it. Yeah, a few months later, I was in his studio. He went, oh, I've got something for you here. And he'd just come back from Belgium. I was hoping it was going to be a, a fucking box of chocolates. <laughs> but um, he's, he's moved some boxes and bits and pieces away. And then he's held up this painting. And he's, he's put it in my hands. And he went, that's for you. And I was like, sorry? And he's just fucking gifted me this, Fuck. this painting. I couldn't, I, and I still don't know the words to, to thank him enough, you know, for him to to gift me mm. this painting. Come on, man, it meant the world to me, you know? And I, I didn't have the words to, to tell him that. And I, I still don't know what those words are. Mm. Other than other than thank you and, and that didn't seem enough at the time, you know. Yeah. That's where a that's where a working class vocabulary sort of falls on its arse. Oh, that's beautiful, man. You're very lucky. Very lucky. But anyway, the other the other artists. Mona Hatoon. Obviously. Um Monahtoon was the the artist that unlocked the key to conceptual art. She seems to be able to say everything that is in my heart and in my mind. Yeah. And nearly all of her works I could put my title to and it would fit my narrative, you know. Sarah Lucas, when I met her for the first time, she made me feel part of this art world. Mm. And I couldn't have started face value without her, really. Yeah. Gavin Turk. Gavin was the second artist that wrote to me. And Gavin's work, where he he sort of gives value to the overlooked and and makes people look at stuff that they would normally walk past. That's always connected with me. And Mark Wallinger. Mark Wallinger's my fifth artist. Mark Wallinger's work at No Man's Land in 2001, that was the greatest art experience I'd ever had. Superb. And I can't see... I mean, nothing's come close to it in twenty years. Yeah, and to be honest, I hope nothing, nothing else does. Yeah, I went to that show myself. I've got a catalogue here somewhere. Yeah, I didn't have it, but then uh, I always kept forgetting the name of that show. And then Lee Ainsworth found the catalogue for me online and and bought it for me. <laughs> so I'll always remember. <laughs> and now I do. No Man's Land, two thousand and one. Good. So yeah, that's my um, that's my five artists. They was. My five favourite artists from the Offset, and they still are to this day. Great answer. They're my favourites as well. Yeah, funny that. The last of the seven questions I've got, Gary, are, um, if you wasn't an artist, what would you be? I went away when I was 18. I uh, got into a fight with a few fellas, and I went to a prison in Suffolk, an open prison. And they had a pig farm there. Everyone took the piss out of the people who got the job on the pig <laughs> farm. But I tell you what, I absolutely loved it. Yeah. Pigs are like dogs, you know. They are amazingly intelligent. <laughs> yeah, and very tasty. I don't know. I can't. I can't compare it to a dog. <laughs> but yeah, I would love a small holding, a few dozen rare breed pigs. Nice. A couple of chickens running around. Yeah, ideal. That's all my set questions asked. But can I ask you about your time drawings and how they come about? Yeah, well, up until a couple of years ago, I had a full-time job. And um, I wanted to leave that to to concentrate on my art. And the art I wanted to produce was large works that were hard to sell. Yeah. So I had the idea of creating some drawings and from those drawings create prints. And that would be my income while I concentrated on these larger works. Yeah. yeah. I had an idea of large sections of barbed wire and padlocks. But um, there was quite a bold and threatening object, you yeah, know. Yeah. And I wanted to create these finely detailed drawings of those. And after a few experiments, I came to crosshatching. One of the crosshatches looked a bit like a, a tally, you know, the four stripes mm. down and one across. Like prisoners do on a cell wall. Exactly that. And then I thought, it's, it's got to be a tally. I've got to draw them out of tallies. Yeah. It just connects it straight back to prison. And then that created the title of the series, The Time Drawings. I wanted it to show the absolute fucking waste of time is going to prison. And how many tally marks was it that made up one of these barbs? I have no idea. I purposely didn't count them because I wanted that to be a waste of time. And if anyone wanted to find out, they could count them, (laughs) which on its own would be a waste of time. Were they complex to draw? Well, just imagine it. Just imagine sitting there doing tallies in different thicknesses, one after another, after another. The most I could do was about four hours. But at one point, I even got my phone out and done like an Instagram Live of me just drawing these tally marks. There was so so many people watching who were just saying it was was so calming just watching these marks coming off the end of the pen, you know? So it was sort of like um, staring into a burning fire or... You know, like staring at a fish tank, that sort of thing, you know. For for whatever reason, it was quite calming. Yeah, so I suppose you had to sort of uh, get into a certain mindset before you started. Oh, exactly, exactly. Well, I hadn't seen any new ones come out for the past few months. Yeah, I wasn't able to make them for a while. I wasn't in, in quite the right headspace, you know. Um, on my wife's side, they recently discovered running through the family was a... Um, a rare cancer gene called paraganglioma and um, um, my kids have to get tested for it and they found that Jenny, my partner, had the gene. Uh, My son Samuel had the gene as well but luckily for my daughter Hannah she didn't. So then they have to get tested every um, year with an MRI but in between they got a blood test and they was looking for a certain chemical that that this cancer if it was to show would um, emit and it emits a chemical called normetadrenaline and um and we got a phone call one time to say that the levels of normetadrenaline in my son Samuel who had um just turned 16 his were higher than they should be The normal adrenaline levels in most of us is around 800 and his was um, 4,300. So they wanted to see him for another blood test. And then a month or so later he went and had another blood test. And then a few weeks later, um, the second... The second blood test come back, and again that was high. So um, yeah, so we had to go and have a, a second MRI, and on the second MRI, they um, they contacted us on Wednesday, the fourth of October, which was the first day of the second lockdown. And we was in a fucking traffic jam on the M25, all four of us, when when I got the call from the doctor to uh to say that they've found a tumour. <gasps> Just above my son's right kidney. <laughs> Just to say they found a tumour. Just above my son's right kidney. So pretty much since. The uh, end of July. I've not been able to. um, To concentrate on anything you know. And anyone who's been in a similar situation with. Themselves or a loved one. You'll know that it's all encompassing. You know it's just. Like a mist in your life that you're constantly walking through. And, you know, you can't concentrate on anything for more than fucking 20 seconds, you know. And then um, they were just organising his operation to take it out. And it had to be um, open surgery because of where it was. It was in between blood vessels. So he had to have a PET scan. Which is um, a more detailed scan. and um, So they could get a better understanding of how it was and where it was and how to approach it. And um, when we went up to get the results for this PET scan. They uh, they told us that they found another one just above his coccyx. Which... Um, God, sorry. And he was about to have his um, operation at the start of January, and we got a call saying that all the beds are needed for for COVID, including the post-op beds. Um, so yeah, that's put us on hold for for quite a while, really. So we're just waiting now for the COVID levels to drop a bit and um, them to be able to hand the beds back over to, to post up. And how's he been coping with it? How's this for a fucking kid who's just turned 16, right? Bearing in mind, he's got the gene, and he knows that his sister hasn't. His first words were, I'm glad it's me and not Hannah. Fucking hell, man. I know a lot of um adults that wouldn't have thought that clearly. And if it weren't for sort of like me being able to let off some steam to to like Lee Ainsworth and like my brother in law Paul and yeah, my friend Neil. And Nick Ogben, the the loveless artist. Um yeah, just little chats with them every now and then as as Proper pulled me through. Yeah, without speaking to people and it would have been a lot harder, you know. Yeah, yeah, I know, because even when I've been doing these podcasts and you know, people aren't aware of what's going on in my life, but um fucking know I'm even getting mixed up here of who's the fucking host and who's the guest. But, yeah, when I've been sitting doing these podcasts to people, just speaking to a stranger outside the house during lockdown has been a great help. But anyway, Gary, getting back to art. Um, what have you got coming up? I know it's a bit of a uncertain time but have you got anything coming up well funnily enough um a couple of months ago i got a call off ben from art below oh yeah inviting me into a a group show in the fulham town hall it's a beautiful big old building that um is being made into a hotel and shopping complex and just before it goes over um they've funded ben to to put an exhibition together yeah i've not seen the full list of artists yet but um the room that I've got, I know Skip Gallery are next door to me. And I know that from my podcast, as well as Ben Moore being there, MC Yammer, she's there, Abigail Fallis. Nice. And Ben Eyne, who is the other side of me. Yeah, Ben has also asked me to um, host a few art talks. So, so that's something that's going to be really quite exciting. And I've got a few things in store for... Um, This is going to be a bit complicated to cross this over between me and you. Or I'll say say this. I know that me and you are collaborating, Gary. We are. To um, me, you and Lee Ainsworth (laughs) are going to be working on Ministry of Arts this year. Yeah. And um, getting a few things going from there. Well, I think just as things were getting a bit too complicated, you explained that pretty well. Where can people find you, be it website or social media? my social media handle is Mizog Art, mizogart m i z o g a r t i'm mainly only on instagram but i i do pop over to um twitter occasionally um my website my website came down recently but you can you can see my work on my instagram page or over on ministry of arts website we've got you on there as well you have well that's about it gary um the 100th episode thank you very much for being so uh... Open and honest, and thank you for telling us about your son. He sounds like a an amazing lad. Yeah, yeah, he is. And all the very best of luck to you and your family for uh, 2021. Yeah, thank you, Gary. Same to you. Thanks for having me on. See you later. ta da Yeah, that was all right, wasn't it? Yeah, I was surprised how much we had in common. <laughs> yeah, funny that, wasn't it? There you go. Gary Mansfield, that was something a little different, wasn't it? And wasn't he a lovely bloke? I'd been asked several times in the past um, when I'm going to be the feature of an episode, and well, there it was. Lee Ainsworth and I were contemplating who I could get to, to interview me. I did ask Lee, but, <laughs> but he bottled it. Um, Then we thought of getting another podcaster, or even try our luck for a well-known art historian. I'm aware that my approach to interviewing is uh, uh, <laughs> a little different from most. So jokingly, I said I should try and get me to interview me. And you all know how awkward it is leaving a, an answer phone message when you know there's no one at the other end um, sort of listening live, as it were. You want to try doing that for a two-hour podcast. Especially when I discovered that every 20 minutes of recording took five hours to edit. All in all, it's taking just under 32 hours. And that um, that emotional bit at the end when I was speaking about my son Samuel, what I did intend to do was just to say that because of COVID and my children um, homeschooling and my partner Jenny working from home, I wasn't able to get much done. But sitting here alone in my studio, it just flowed out, you know? Um, and I did debate whether to keep it in after playing it to a couple of people. Yeah, well, I decided to. I decided to keep it in. And I made sure it was okay with my family beforehand. But anyway, episode 100. I met some amazing people, heard some amazing stories, and and made some bloody good friends, I can tell you. So, yeah, thank you all for your support over the last 100 episodes. The shout-outs on social media, brilliant. Um, The comments on whichever platform you listen to this podcast, They really are helpful and much appreciated. The guys who have supported the podcast financially over on Patreon, a big thank you goes out to you guys. And well, what have we got in store for 2021? Well, I've already got about eight recorded. I've got a couple of artists that are at the very start of their career. They're always very interesting and get a lot of um, of good feedback on the socials. And I'm recording a couple this week with two people that, although they create visual art, we know them much more for, um, well, for what they do in their uh, everyday job. But other than that, if, um, if there's anyone that you'd like to have on the podcast, just let me know. It's easy enough to reach out to most of these people, but, you know, whether they say yes or not is a, a whole different kettle of fish, you know? And as you're aware, we've got dozens of confirmed artists lined up. So what we are doing this year, we're offering 20-minute um, bonus episodes to promote yourself, your exhibition, your gallery. If that's something you feel you'd like, just um, just drop us a line. It's only a small fee. Well, that's about it. Um, next week's episode is art historian Joe McLaughlin, who hosts the relatively new Joe's Art History podcast. If you don't know of it yet, you can find Joe over on the socials at Joe's Art History shoot over there and give her a follow. So that just leaves me to end this podcast, how I end every other podcast, by saying, um, on whichever platform you listen to this podcast, you should be able to leave a comment. If you could do that, that really would help us to get noticed and anybody else looking for an art podcast. If you want to get in touch, you can contact us on our socials, which is Ministry of org, or on our website, which is www.ministryofarts.org So, thanks for listening and until next week ta da